So I'm going to do a reading from Luke 18, 1 through 8. Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. He said, In a certain town there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to them with the plea, Grant me justice against my adversary. For some time he refused. But finally he said to himself, Even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually swear me out with her coming. And the Lord said, Listen to what the unjust says. And will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones who cry out to him day and night? Will he keep putting them off? I tell you, he will see that they get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? Good morning. How's it going? Uh, About three years ago, I made a phone call uh, that I recorded legally, and uh, it was not a joke to the White House. Um, I tried to get through to President Obama at the time. I want you to take a listen. Hello, this is the White House comment line. May I please take your brief comment for the President? Yeah, actually, I was hoping that you could transfer me directly to President Obama. I, is there any way I can talk to him directly? I'm sorry, I, even I don't have a direct line to the President. Oh, um, do you know, is there a number that I could call, or, I mean, is there any way to try to get through to talk to him directly on the phone? Not that I'm aware of, but I could take a brief comment um, for the office of the president. Okay, and do these comments go directly to him, or how does that work? It goes to the office of the president, and from there, um, I don't have any personal knowledge (laughs) of who answers them. Oh, okay. Uh, Well... Uh, I guess my brief comment would be that I was um, wanting to have or ask if President Obama would kind of use his public platform to just raise awareness of um, sex trafficking that is happening domestically in the United States, especially around large events like the Super Bowl and, you know, um, the Olympics, things like that. Uh, Just wanting to try to, uh, I don't know, eradicate that evil, Uh I suppose. So uh, hoping that he could do something about it. Okay. All right, I've got your comment down. Thank you for calling. Okay, thank you. Bye-bye. So I don't mean to be pessimistic, but in listening to that phone call and reflecting on it, I have some serious doubts as to whether or not that ever actually made it to Obama's desk. Um, We're going to spend the next four weeks looking at some different aspects of prayer. And and immediately as I say that, prayer um, is simultaneously an easy topic to preach on and difficult. It's easy because there's a lot to talk about, uh, and it's something we all know we ought to be doing, uh, which is also one of the reasons it's difficult. It's one of the easiest things for us to feel guilty about because almost everyone in this room knows that they ought to be praying more or more consistently than they currently are. Um, I'm not judging you, I'm just saying, speaking from my own experience, I I think that's probably true of most of us. And so I just want to come out of the gate, beginning the series, telling us 
Uh, the goal is not a church-wide guilt trip to produce short-term um, results. Uh, my hope is that we would see, uh, number one, the privilege that prayer is, which is the reason I showed you that phone call. Because even though you and I will never have direct access to the president, some of you don't want it, um, but even though we'll never have direct access to him, we have direct access through Christ to a room far more powerful than the Oval Office, to a man far greater, to a God far greater than any world leader. My hope is that we would see what a privilege that is, that we would see what we've been given in prayer. Um, We are encouraged. In John 16, Jesus tells us, you have the ability now through Jesus, you have the ability to talk to God the Father directly. Uh, Hebrews 10 encourages us. um, The verse will be on the screen as well. It says, Since we have confidence to enter the most holy place by the blood of Jesus, by a new and living way opened for us through the curtain, that is his body, so all of that is saying because we've been given access to God through Jesus and his work on the cross, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near to God with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled to cleanse us from a guilty conscience and having our bodies washed with pure water. Another verse also in Hebrews, it says, let us approach the throne of grace with confidence so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help us in our time of need. You have been given access to the throne of grace. Far from being an obligation, prayer is a significant privilege. So that was the first goal. The second is that we would see the power of prayer. The effects and the, the impact of prayer is way, uh, it's much further reaching and longer lasting than most of us uh, realize. I'm just going to give a few examples from scripture of things that happened as a result of prayer. And if you don't know the stories that I'm going to kind of rattle off, that's okay. What I want you to see is this consistent pattern of people praying and God doing something awesome. People pray and God working. That's the pattern that I want you to see. Number one, in Exodus 32, Moses averts the destruction of the entire nation of Israel by prayer. In 1 Kings 17 and 18, a man named Elijah begins and then ends a three-year drought in the nation of Israel by prayer. A guy named Hezekiah in 2 Kings 19, by his prayer, God responds and protects the nation from certain destruction of invasion. There are invaders basically at the doorsteps of the kingdom. Hezekiah prays and God responds. One chapter later, in that very same book, very same man, God, through his prophet Isaiah, tells Hezekiah, you have a terminal illness, you're going to die. Put your house in order because it's, it's not long now. Hezekiah prays, his terminal illness is healed, and he gets 15 extra years of life because he prayed. It was prayer that opened the barren wombs of Rebekah, who was the mother of Jacob, Hannah, the mother of Samuel, and Elizabeth, the mother of John the Baptist. Three women who could not have children, who wanted children, their husbands and them pray routinely, repeatedly, over and over, and God blesses. Uh, Prayer brings about the healing of 
a ton of people, and here I'm not just talking about the ministry of Jesus, his followers pray and God does miraculous healings. Raising uh, two people at least named Dorcas and Eutychus, uh, healing a beggar at the temple. Many, many, many who were blind, deaf, or dumb, or lame, could not walk, could not see, hear, or talk, and God heals in response to people's prayer. In Acts chapter 12, a man named Peter is in prison. He is miraculously let out of prison, and right before that happens, it says the church was, quote, earnestly praying for him. Also, Paul, the Apostle Paul in Philippians chapter 1, he's writing this, this letter from prison, and he says that, I believe that what's happening to me, my own imprisonment and persecution, will be used not just for the general good of the kingdom and the gospel, not just a general sense of God will use it big picture, although he does say that, and that is true. What he says is, for my own deliverance, my own good, my own personal good, through your prayers, God will redirect evil that's being done and use it to, to make me a better man, is what he says. These are just a handful of examples of the power of prayer. All of them, there are more, all of them give credence to the statement in James chapter 5 where he says the prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. And so I'm really hoping that as we go into the sermon series on prayer and as we look at it, that you don't just feel guilty and discouraged because your prayer life isn't what you think it should be or what you hope it should be or what you think God wants. My hope is that you would be encouraged to see what a privilege it is and to see how powerful it is, that we would be motivated out of those things. So, we're going to start by looking at the passage that John read in Luke chapter 18, which talks about persistence. Now, sometimes in our lives, persistence pays off. If you, you know, don't give up. If at first you don't succeed, try, try again, right? Uh, and sometimes it's just really annoying. Um, and just people just keep bugging you about the same thing over and over, and you're just like, just stop. And sometimes it doesn't pay off. Uh, in Luke 18, Jesus seems to teach here that persistence in the kingdom of God, persistence in prayer does pay off. So if you've got a Bible, um, open it up to Luke 18. It's also on the slip in front of you. And we will we'll look at this parable In verse 1, it says this, uh, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them that they should always pray and not give up. So the way parables work is they are short fictional stories that Jesus tells to illustrate some spiritual truth. And our job as the reader is to interpret uh, who the different characters represent Uh, what the different events might represent, and what the parable, therefore, means. Sometimes the Bible interprets them for us, and we're we're given the answer, and sometimes we need to do a little more digging. This one is pretty generous. It tells us before the parable even starts what the main point is. Um, Look at it again. It says, Then Jesus told his disciples a parable to show them, and here's the point, they should always pray and not give up. That's the point of the parable. That's the point of the sermon. So on your little sheet, there's two blanks. Um, Always pray, don't give up. So let's just look at those two phrases real quick before we jump into the parable itself. Always pray. 
Always pray. There are no exclusions or exemptions in the text. We're to always constantly be coming, uh, coming before the Lord in prayer. Later, a guy named Paul will say, pray without ceasing. It's supposed to be sort of like breathing. Breathing is this background process that all of you are doing right now, hopefully. Uh, all of you are doing right now, and you've done since the moment you were born. And that is something, it's this background abiding process that supports and gives power to everything else that you do. It is something that sustains your work, your life, your job, your career, your family, everything. It won't happen without you breathing. Uh, Prayer, similarly, when he says to always pray and to pray without ceasing, I think we're supposed to think about it as this background process that's kind of always happening. So what this might look like just to kind of put some um, pictures in your mind of what this could look like, is let's say you've got a big meeting at work this next week. You might pray just as you're walking down the hallway into the room, the conference room. You might pray something like, Lord, this is a big meeting. Uh, We've got a big deal to close, and there's a lot of money involved and a lot of different opinions. I ask that you would give me wisdom and grace as I talk with my coworkers and help us to know what to do. Uh, You might pray something like, Lord, I know it's going to be a hard day. The kids went to bed last night. They uh, went to bed late last night. Uh, it's going to be difficult. Um, I ask that you would give me grace and patience. I ask that you'd help them to obey, something quick like that. Um, you, even as you're talking to someone, you should still be listening, but you might be able to pray silently in your mind, Lord, help me to know what to say to encourage this person. Or Lord, I pray that you'd comfort them in whatever it is they're talking about. You're praying, to them as, or praying for them as they're talking to you. It's this constant background abiding process. In addition to that, we do need times of concentrated prayer where it's not kind of this background thing, but where it is the focus of the time. Just like in your marriage, even though you'll maybe drive together or or, um, walk past each other in the hallway, as it were, um, there needs to be times where you're just hanging out one-on-one on on the couch talking or at a date, um, at a dinner or whatever, there needs to be times of concentrated prayer for us. For some of you, waking up really early in the morning, that'll be a great time for that. Others of you, that (laughs) just will not work. Um, uh, You might need to be a late late night, like a night owl type person, and maybe that'll be your prayer time. Maybe it's mid-afternoon. Maybe it's mid-morning. I don't know. Whatever works for your schedule and your personality and temperament, do that. Give, give some time to the Lord. And let me just share uh, where I was several years ago. If someone had preached this sermon, I would have been like, okay, how long? Um, that's just where I was. It's like, I know I should, but I kind of like, it's kind of boring. I kind of don't want to, but I know I should, so I'll grow. Um, so just where I was, and if this is where you're at, let me just give you, the permission, give you permission to start where you are, okay? So if two or three minutes is all you can do, then own that two or three minutes consistently, day in, day out. And then after you've done a good job for a couple of weeks praying, then you say, all right, Lord, I'm going to go to five. And not to be legalistic, but because uh, prayer is a learned skill that you need to train yourself in, you might even set a timer on your phone or your watch. This is what I did. Um, and again, this is not a legalistic thing. This was just, Lord, I'm wanting to grow. And so I would set a timer on my phone, five minutes, and I will either pray or be silent for five minutes. Um, 
And so that's what you do. And my encouragement to you is if you're at the spot where the two to three minutes is like that's where you are, that's okay. Let's start there. Um, let's make it a goal. There's nothing biblical or magical about this number. I'm just trying to um, give us all something. Uh, make it a goal 20 minutes. Every person in this room, 20 minutes a day consistently. That's a lot of prayer. Um, now, if that, start, if that already sounds like, ah, remember, start where you are um, and grow. There are a few things in your insert that are opportunities to grow in prayer, books to read or um, little uh, opportunities or experiences you can go to. Um, prayer is sort of like riding a bike. It is a skill, and it is a skill that is best learned just by doing it. Um, there is some teaching and some understanding that we need, uh, but the best way to learn how to pray is to pray. And so uh, my encouragement to you would be grow yourself and then try to find a way um, with our church or um, some other prayer meeting type place to grow. All right, so always pray. The second one is don't give up. Other translations will say don't lose heart, don't grow faint. Uh, The idea here is that Jesus wants to protect us from becoming overwhelmingly discouraged in prayer and giving up, which I don't know about you, but that's encouraging to me. Um, I don't know if this has ever happened to anyone in this room, but there have been times where it's where I've said, okay, I'm going to pray, and I kind of just don't feel like it. Um, Or you're praying, and your mind wanders, and you start thinking about the most meaningless stuff, Um, like not even important things, like just completely anything else than actually praying. Your mind will wander, or you'll just get bored. Am I alone here? Is that is that anyone else? Okay, thank you. All right, let me let's just be honest with ourselves. Prayer, it is simple, and yet it's really difficult. Uh, and Jesus pray or tells us this parable to show us that we should not give up. And you know what I find interesting? Jesus is never recorded as telling a parable uh, as to why we should always read our Bibles and never give up. Um, I mean, certainly that is something we ought to be doing. The scriptures, and I think Jesus would agree, um, I mean, the scriptures clearly teach that we need God's word and we need to read it and know it. But he never tells a parable to that end. And we're going to enter into, here's Tyler's theory um, section of the sermon. Okay, and this is just a theory, but this is why I think that is. When we read our Bibles, it's easier to feel like something's getting done you're able to turn a page or if you're on a tablet or something, you're able to swipe. You can see progress, chapter and verse progress and you can check something off a sheet. You see at one level a cause and effect taking place. And a lot of times when we pray, if we're honest with ourselves, it feels like we're doing nothing. I'm not saying that's true. I'm just saying that's how it can feel. It can feel like we're just talking to the air, and nothing's getting done. And uh, us Americans, especially Northwestern Americans, have a very independent attitude and ethos about us, where if we want something done, the best way to do it is just to do it yourself, right? And so we would never really say this to the Lord, but we might function out of a belief that if I really want my marriage to get better, the best thing for me to do is to read a book, do counseling, go to conferences, and kind of pray 
Now, I'm not saying those things are bad, but I'm saying if you're not really going to ask the Holy Spirit to change your heart or your spouse's heart or whatever it is, then I don't know that what you're wanting is actually going to happen. So it can feel like we're doing nothing. Now, that, like I said, is not the truth because the truth that the scriptures teach us is that prayer is the weapon that God has given us to wage the war in which he's placed us. We are in a spiritual war. Demons are real. Satan is real. I mean, it's not as weird and caricaturized as you might be thinking, but those, there is a spiritual reality, and there are forces that want to keep you from God. And when you fail to pray, it is as if you're walking into a battlefield, unarmed, undefended, standing there like a sitting duck. Prayer is simultaneously simple enough for a child to perform and yet it is powerful enough to cause trembling at the gates of hell. It is prayer that protected Peter from Satan. Satan himself, you can resist him, not on your own, but by praying to the Lord and that God would hold him back. And he does. So, I think that's why he tells us a parable on prayer. Because it feels like we're not doing anything. Now, what's interesting is Jesus hits on this not giving up point and this idea of faith and believing that God actually hears and answers prayer and it actually does stuff at the end. Look in verse 8. He says, I tell you, he, God, will see that they, the believers, get justice and quickly. However, when the Son of Man comes, will he find faith on the earth? So the issue at hand for Jesus is not so much whether or not God hears and responds to prayer. It is whether or not mankind will be faithful to continue praying. It is not whether or not God listens to you. It's whether or not you'll continue talking to him. That's the question that Jesus asks. So let's look at the parable itself. He gives us a parable to show us. He gives us reasons why we should always pray and never give up. So verse two, he says, in a certain town, there was a judge who neither feared God nor cared about men. And there was a widow in that town who kept coming to him with the plea, grant me justice against my adversary. For some time, he refused. But finally, he said to himself, even though I don't fear God or care about men, yet because this widow keeps bothering me, I will see that she gets justice so that she won't eventually wear me out with her coming. So like I mentioned earlier in these parables, characters represent people. And in this parable, from the way that Jesus um, interprets it in verses 6 and 7, we can see that the, God, that the judge represents God, sort of. Uh, because this parable actually teaches by contrast. In a lot of ways, it teaches us who God is not. Now look at this judge. It says that he neither fears God nor cares about men, this helpless widow comes before him who's being oppressed and he is indifferent. The point is that he is cold, he is ruthless, he does not care about justice, he is self-centered. The only reason he actually ends up acting is for his own convenience, right? So she won't eventually wear me out with her. It's not because, you know what, I've seen the light, this woman needs help. It has nothing to do with that. It has everything to do with, I am tired of her, and I want to be rid of her, so I'll, I'll just do something. How 
good is it that God is not like this? God is not like this judge. This guy cares nothing about justice. Contrast this with our God, who is described in Psalm 7 as a righteous judge. In Psalm 99.4, it says that he loves justice, that he does what is just and right. In Psalm 101, the guy says, I will sing of your love and justice. In Isaiah 30, it says that Yahweh is a God of justice. The point is that this judge in the parable, he is the little J anti-judge. He's everything a judge should not be. And God is everything. He is the epitome of justice and righteousness. God cares about the fact that this widow has an adversary. God cares about the fact that people get treated unfairly. Now sometimes in life, we're going to see injustices occur to others, to ourselves. At times, we'll even be the ones to commit the injustice. Now, verse seven clearly tells us, it says, God will see that they get justice and quickly. God is a righteous judge. I, I, this is enough, this is a whole topic for another sermon, but let me just say, there is a great promise in scripture that there is a day coming when everything wrong will be made right, when every evil will be undone, when every tear will be wiped from every eye, there will be no mourning or crying or pain or sickness or death because the old order of things will be passed away. Jesus says, I am making everything new. Our God is a God of justice and he has promised us a promise that you can take to the bank. He has promised us justice. So, God is just. And sometimes we're going to see that justice play out here on earth through our court system and, and we'll see it take place. Other times we won't. People will seem to get away with things. But the promise is that all evil will be accounted for. Justice will prevail either through the cross or through eternal judgment. But Jesus also tells us that this judge did not care about men. It says, neither feared God nor cared about men. Other translation says, doesn't regard man, doesn't respect men. The idea here is that he cared only about himself. Doesn't care who you are or what you've done, what your status is. He cares only about himself. Again, let's contrast this with who our God is. Our God cares deeply about mankind. In John 3.16, it says that he so loved the world. He so cared about the world. He cared about you and me. Jesus calls himself the good shepherd. I lay down my life for my sheep. Greater love has no one than this, that a man lay down his life for his friends. Jesus says, I know my sheep and they know me. They hear my voice and they follow me. In Psalm 23, David says, the Lord is my shepherd. Maybe it's a little bit cheesy, but there's, you've probably seen it, um, a painting of Jesus holding a little lamb, you know, and he's all soft and fuzzy. And you can take that a little bit too far in your theology, but there's an intimacy to God that this judge completely lacked. There is a closeness to God that you and I enjoy. He does care about us. One of the greatest lies that Satan has ever told is that God does not care about you. And we, we say it so often that God loves you, that Jesus loves you, and yet it is one of the most 
difficult things for us to believe. We continue to resist that notion. But God does care about you. Each and every one of you, individually here, he knows the hairs on your head, or if you're bald, the hairs on your beard, okay? (laughs) That was for you, John. (laughs) God, God loves you and cares deeply about you. He cares about the struggles you're facing at work, the tension in your family, the bad breakup. I mean, he cares about all of those things, even the things that aren't, don't seem to be, you know shouldn't be that big a deal but still bug you. He cares about those things too. He cares deeply. So really, the only way that this judge represents God in any way is really only in position. In no way in his character or personality or temperament is this judge like God. So that's the first point, that God is not this judge. God is everything that this judge is not. And that should greatly encourage us to pray. That should greatly encourage us to come before him. He is not like this man. But not only is God not like the judge, we are not the widow. We are not the widow. Jesus, as he interprets it, pairs us with the widow, but there is still distinct contrast. Just by the way Jesus refers to us in verse 7, he says, will not God bring about justice for his chosen ones? She represents his chosen ones. This judge did not choose this widow. Basically, this widow represents anyone who has put their faith in Jesus Christ. All believers, okay? Now, judges, or uh, widows in this day were were part of a class of society that was powerless, voiceless, pretty vulnerable. Almost all of them never held any property. Once your husband died, I mean, it was, it was kind of hopeless unless you could get married again, which was kind of a long shot. Um, thankfully, that's not exactly how it is today. Um, but in Bible times, when he's talking about this widow, she has no reason that this judge should listen to her. And there are several significant differences that place us in a different category when it comes to how we relate to the Lord. They give us greater access to God than this woman had to the judge. I'm only going to mention three, but there are more. I'd encourage you, if you, if you don't have anything to meditate on, then um, this would be a good one over the next week in thinking about uh, this thing. The first difference is this woman's alone. She has nobody to stand up for her in court. She is entirely on her own. She comes before the judge over and over again and there is no one pleading on her behalf. Onlookers look on maybe with apathy, maybe some pity, but nobody takes up her case. She's on her own. You and I, if we have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, that is not true. You and I have a great high priest. We, you and I have a mediator who stands before God in Ephesians, it says that we have been seated with Christ. He is, we are co-heirs with him. He stands before God pleading on your behalf. Jesus prays for you by name. If you were to import this principle into the parable here, it would be as if the widow had the judge's son for her lawyer. 
Although you need to understand, obviously, that the judge is not against us. God is not against us as this judge was, the widow. But you and I have Jesus Christ on our side. She had no one. We have the one standing for us. We have an advocate. We have a mediator that she did not have. Someone who cares about us deeply. I, um, I was recently, like a week and a half or two weeks ago, talking to a guy uh, about um, this sort of. He was a former Muslim who was a quasi-atheist, like wasn't sure if God existed, kind of maybe not, but if he does, uh, I don't know, kind of shrugged his shoulders. But he said something really interesting, and he's reacting out of, out of his upbringing. Uh, but he said, if God does exist, then, we, then what we need is some like in-between guy, is what he said. And I'm like, he's like, we need someone who's like kind of like our friend, but is also kind of like God and like can like relate us to each other. And I'm like, dude, dude, that's Jesus. You need someone. Because of our sin, because we've rebelled against God, we need someone to speak on our behalf. And that is exactly what Jesus does. The second difference is that this woman was discouraged and disinvited from coming before the judge. All it says in verse four is that it is for some time he refused, but it's repeated. It happened more than once. So he said things like, no, I will not grant you justice. Go away. Stop bugging me. In today's world, he might have gotten a restraining order. He refused. He continually held her at arm's length. He never invited her in. He never said, okay, let me just at least hear it and then said no. He just said no. You and I, through this parable and through many other teachings in Scripture, are invited and encouraged to come before God. This man held her at arm's length, and he brings us in. Remember again that verse we saw in Hebrews. It says, let us draw near to God. Let us approach the throne of grace. God, in contrast to this judge, says, come to me. Tell me about it, and tell me about it again, again, and again, and again. Bug me, pester me. Annoy me. Come before the throne. Ask and you will receive. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened. He promises to listen. And this judge did everything he could to ignore. The last difference is the status of our relationship. These characters are not given names in the parable, uh, but... A widow and a judge, they probably had no idea who each other, uh, who each other were before the, the um, situation arose. She didn't know his name at first, and he probably didn't know hers. There's no basis of relationship for her to come before him. It's not like they're on first name basis, you know? And yet, you and I, again, in contrast to this, we are called children of God. Ephesians 1 says that you, we've been adopted it's, you're, not just, you're not just an advisor to the judge in the court. You're not just there as, as a guest. You're there as a child. You're there as his son or his daughter. 1 John 3 says, How great is the love that the Father has lavished on us that we should be called children of God. And then in John 1 it says, To all who believed in him, they, he gave the right to become children of God. You, if you have placed your faith in Jesus Christ, you are his son. 
you are his daughter. You stand in favor with him. And you don't approach him as a widow approaches a judge. You approach him as a child approaches his father, which is awesome. So, the God, so God is not this judge, and neither are we the widow. Those two facts ought to greatly encourage us to pray. They should greatly encourage us to pray. And when we feel like giving up, because the reasons we feel like giving up, this parable teaches us they're not right. We think he's not listening. We think he doesn't care. We think for some reason our prayers aren't that important to him. Whatever. That's not true. That's not true. This woman had every reason to believe that her case would never see the light of day. She had no mediator. She had no money, no political weight, no way to put pressure on the judge to listen to her. She was discouraged and disinvited, and she didn't know him at all. You add to that the fact that he is cold, ruthless, uncaring, cares nothing about justice, and yet by her dogged persistence alone, she wins the ear of the judge, and her case is heard and answered. Now, if this poor and hopeless widow can convince this cruel and unjust judge by persistence, how much more shall you and I, children of God, co-heirs with Christ, with Jesus pleading on our behalf, how much more shall we persuade our God, who is a caring father and shepherd and a just judge, how much more shall we, by our persistence, have his ear? If it works in the worst of cases, what do you think it would do in the best? We have everything this woman lacked, and God is everything that that judge wasn't. And those things are to greatly encourage us to pray, to always pray, again and again and again, however long it takes until you get an answer. And here's the promise in Scripture. You will get an answer. It might not be yes, but you'll get an answer. You might be asking for something that the Lord wants you to go without so that you know how much his grace can actually do. The Apostle Paul prayed three times that God would remove this thorn from his flesh and God said, my grace is sufficient for you. So you pray for what you need and God will either say yes, he might say wait a little while. My son asked me for a motorcycle the other day. (laughs) Or he might say no, I know you need it, but I'm gonna withhold it from you and give you my grace to go without it instead. And there's a whole other sermon here on praying according to the will of God and, and praying um, things that you know are right and with the right motive. But let me just say this. If you know, if you know that it is something that is in the will of God, something like the conversion of souls, something like unity in the church, if you know that it's something, this is, by the way, a, a huge reason why we ought to pray scripture Um, And if you want to learn how to do that, there's an article on the back table or a chair back there you should grab. It's like one page. Read it. It's good. All that to say, if you know that what you're praying is in line with the will of God, do not give up. Pray again and again and again. Some of you have children who've walked away from the Lord years ago and you've been praying for them for decades maybe. Don't give up. Don't give up. Some of you have people you've been trying to lead to Jesus or you've been trying to disciple and it just feels like it's rolling a boulder up a hill. 
Continue to pray for them and do not give up. Some of you have been trying to follow the Lord for a long time and it's starting to feel pretty tiresome. Pray for your own zeal and your own passion and do not give up. Pray, 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 pray. I'm going to close with a quote from a guy named Charles Spurgeon, a 19th century um, pastor in London, and he had a sermon on this that was so good, and just the way he closed it, I felt like would really, really speak to us. The quote will also be on the screen if you want to read, read follow along in your mind as I read. <clears throat> it says, Now brethren and sisteren, all of us, <laughs> this patriarch, now, brethren, you have many other weapons to use with God in prayer, but our Savior asks you not to neglect this master, all-conquering instrument of persistence. God will be more easily moved than this unjust judge. Only be as persistent as the widow. If you are sure that it is a right thing for which you are asking, plead now, plead at noon, plead at night, and plead on. With cries and tears, spread out your case. Order your arguments. Back up your pleas with reasons. Urge the precious blood of Jesus. Set the wounds of Christ before the Father's eyes. Bring out the atoning sacrifice. Point to Calvary. Enlist the crown prince, the priest who stands at the right hand of God, and resolve in your very soul that if Zion does not flourish, if souls are not saved, if your family is not blessed, if your own zeal is not revived, yet you will die with the plea upon your lips and with the persistent wish upon your spirits. I chose this sermon to be the first in this series um, to encourage you as we as a church enter into a one-month season of growing in prayer that we would be persistent, that we would be a church that always prays and does not give up, that you as individuals would grow and that we as a church would grow in that. May God, may God make that happen here. So, Normally, right now, I would close the sermon in prayer. But I'm going to throw you a curveball. You're going to close the sermon in prayer, in groups. And I know, as I said that, a few of you, your stomachs just jumped a little bit. But I am convinced that we cannot simply talk about it. Uh, we must, as a church, practice what we preach. And so I know for some of you, praying in a group and out loud is, is going to be a stretch. So just hear me out. Let me walk you through how we're going to do it, and then we'll give it a shot. And just so you know, we're doing it for the next four weeks. So um, <laughs> just don't resist, okay? <laughs> so here's how it's going to work. Imagine your pews are cut in half. About half of you turn around and be with the pew behind you in just a moment. You don't have to do it now. And you'll be in groups of four to six-ish. Be aware of um, stragglers. Um, that's not a nice word to call them. <laughs> just be aware of people who like didn't get in a group. Make sure everyone's included, okay? And you might just go around. Everyone just say, hey, my name is so-and-so. My deepest, darkest secret is this. Um, just kidding. Just say, hey, my name's Joe. Nice to meet you, okay? So uh, after that, I'm going to put up prayers on the screen. So if you're like, I don't, like, I don't know how to pray. Um, I just jumped a bunch of cold water on some of you. So I'm going to put up prayers on the screen. 
So if, if nothing else, just pretend and read, okay? Um, there's going to be scriptural prayers from this passage and some others on the screen, okay? And so feel free to fill in the blanks with your name or the names of those around you. And if you are a person that praying out loud in a group is, is crazy or you're just like, you know, I'm not, I'm not even sure this is my first time at church, it's okay. You don't have to pray out loud. Just be silent. That's fine. Um, we are going to do it for four weeks. So I would encourage you, if you are that person and you are a follower of the Lord, you've been coming here a while, my encouragement was that within the next four weeks, try to stretch yourself at least once. Okay? We'll let it go today because you didn't know it was coming. But um, from here on out, expect it. Okay? But my encouragement, just one time over the next four weeks, try it. But it doesn't have to be today. So you can just I'll let others do it. And my hope and prayer is that there would be at least one person in each group that prays, hopefully more, and what we'll do is you'll just pray together for a few minutes and then I'll say one um, full closing prayer for all of us and then we'll be done, okay? So let's put, go ahead and put the prompts on the screen. Go ahead and break into groups, okay? Start, some of you start turning around, okay? Father, thank you. As I stand up here and listen, I can't really distinguish the voices. I can't hear what's being prayed for. And I just thank you that in your sovereignty, you heard every prayer um, that was just prayed and and prayers throughout the world that are being prayed right now as other churches gather to worship you. We thank you, God, that you invite us as your children to come before you. Thank you, God, that you, through Jesus Christ, bring us into the throne room of grace. And Lord, I ask that you would make us a church that is persistent in prayer. Give us each the, the spirit of the persistent widow. May we have faith that you hear and answer prayers. May we always pray and not give up. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.